Lecture 13 of Pioneers of Science. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Pioneers of Science by Sir Oliver Lodge. Lecture 13. Notes to Lecture 13. Bodie's Law. Write down the series 0, 3, 6, 12, 24, 48, etc. Add 4 to each and divide by 10. You get the series point 4, Mercury, point 7, Venus, 1.0, Earth, 1.6, Mars, 2.8, 5.2, Jupiter, 10.0, Saturn, 19.6, Uranus, 38.8. Numbers which very fairly represent the distances of the then-known planets from the Sun in the order specified. Ceres was discovered on the 1st of January, 1801, by Piazzi. Pallas in March, 1802, by Olbers. Juno in 1804, by Harding. And Vesta in 1807, by Olbers. No more asteroids were discovered till 1845, but there are now several hundreds known. Their diameters range from 500 to 20 miles. Neptune was discovered from the perturbations of Uranus by sheer calculation, carried on simultaneously and independently by Le Verrier in Paris and Adams in Cambridge. It was first knowingly seen by Galle of Berlin on the 23rd of September, 1846. Lecture 13. The Discovery of the Asteroids. Up to the time of Herschel, astronomical interest centered on the solar system. Since that time, it has been divided, and a great part of our attention has been given to the more distant celestial bodies. The solar system has by no means lost its interest. It has indeed gained an interest continually, as we gain in knowledge concerning it. But in order to follow the course of science, it will be necessary for us to oscillate to and fro, sometimes attending to the solar system, the planets and their satellites, sometimes extending our vision to the enormously more distant stellar spaces. Those who have read the third lecture in Part 1 will remember the speculation in which Kepler indulged respecting the arrangements of the planets, the order in which they succeeded one another in space, and the law of their respective distances from the sun, and his fanciful guess about the five regular solids inscribed and circumscribed about their orbits. The rude coincidences were, however, accidental and he failed to discover any true law. No thoroughly satisfactory law is known at the present day. And yet, if the nebular hypothesis or anything like it be true, there must be some law to be discovered hereafter, though it may be a very complicated one. An empirical relation is, however, known. It was suggested by Tatius, and published by Bodie of Berlin in 1772. It is always known as Bodie's Law. Bode's law asserts that the distance of each planet is approximately double the distance of the inner adjacent planet from the sun, but that the rate of increase is distinctly slower than this for the inner ones. Consequently, a better approximation will be obtained by adding a constant to each term of an appropriate geometrical progression. Thus, form a doubling series like this, 1 and 1 half, 3, 6, 12, 24, etc., doubling each time then add four to each 
and you get a series which expresses very fairly the relative distances of the successive planets from the sun except that the number for mercury is rather erroneous and we now know that at the other extreme the number for neptune is erroneous too i have stated it in the notes preceding this lecture in a form calculated to give the law every chance and a form that was probably fashionable after the discovery of uranus but to call the first term of the doubling series zero is evidently not quite fair though it puts mercury's distance right neptune's distance however turns out to be more nearly thirty times the earth's distance than thirty-eight point eight the others are very nearly right compare the mean distances from the sun in the table in the summary of facts for lecture three with the numbers in the notes preceding this lecture the discovery of uranus a few years afterwards in seventeen eighty one at nineteen point two times the earth's distance from the sun lent great eclat to the law and seemed to establish its right to be regarded as at least a close approximation to the truth the gap between mars and jupiter which had often been noticed and which kepler filled with a hypothetical planet too small to see comes into great prominence by this law of bode so much so that towards the end of last century an enthusiastic german von zach after some search himself for the expected planet arranged a committee of observing astronomers or as he termed it a body of astronomical detective police to begin a systematic search for this missing subject of the sun in eighteen hundred the preliminaries were settled the heavens near the zodiac were divided into twenty-four regions each of which was entrusted to one observer to be swept meanwhile however quite independently of these arrangements in germany and entirely unknown to this committee a quiet astronomer in sicily piazzi was engaged in making a catalogue of the stars his attention was directed to a certain region in taurus by an error in a previous catalogue which contained a star really non-existent in the course of his scrutiny on the first of january eighteen o one he noticed a small star which next evening appeared to have shifted he watched it anxiously for successive evenings and by the twenty fourth of january he was quite sure he had got hold of some moving body not a star probably he thought a comet it was very small only of the eighth magnitude and he wrote to two astronomers one of them bode himself saying what he had observed he continued to observe till the eleventh of february when he was attacked by illness and compelled to cease his letters did not reach their destination till the end of march directly bode opened his letter he jumped to the conclusion that this must be the missing planet but unfortunately he was unable to verify the guess for the object whatever it was had now got too near the sun to be seen it would not be likely to be out again before september and by that time it would be hopelessly lost again and have just as much to be rediscovered as if it had never been seen mathematical astronomers tried to calculate a possible orbit for the body from the observations of piazzi but the observed places were so desperately few and close together it was like having to determine a curve from three points close together three observations ought to serve but if they are taken with insufficient interval between them it is extremely difficult to construct the whole circumstances of the orbit from them all the calculations gave different results and none were of the slightest use the difficulty as it turned out was most fortunate it resulted in the discovery of one of the greatest mathematicians perhaps the greatest that germany has ever produced gauss he was then a young man of twenty-five eking out a living by tuition 
he had invented but not published several powerful mathematical methods one of them now known as the method of least squares and he applied them to piazzi's observations he was thus able to calculate an orbit and to predict a place where by the end of the year the planet should be visible on the thirty-first of december of that same year very near the place predicted by gauss von sach rediscovered it and olbers discovered it also the next evening piazzi called it ceres after the tutelary goddess of sicily its distance from the sun as determined by gauss was two point seven six seven times the earth's distance bode's law made it two point eight it was undoubtedly the missing planet but it was only one hundred and fifty or two hundred miles in diameter the smallest heavenly body known at the time of its discovery it revolves the same way as other planets but the plane of its orbit is tilted ten degrees to the plane of the ecliptic which was an exceptionally large amount very soon a more surprising discovery followed olbers while searching for ceres had carefully mapped the part of the heavens where it was expected and in march eighteen o two he saw in this place a star he had not previously noticed in two hours he detected its motion and in a month he sent his observations to gauss who returned as answer the calculated orbit it was distant two point six seven like ceres and was a little smaller but it had a very eccentric orbit its plane being tilted thirty-four and one-half degrees an extraordinary inclination this was called pallas olbers at once surmised that these two planets were fragments of a larger one and kept an eager lookout for other fragments in two years another was seen in the course of charting the region of the heavens traversed by ceres and pallas it was smaller than either and was called juno in eighteen o seven the persevering search of olbers resulted in the discovery of another with a very oblique orbit which gauss named vesta vesta is bigger than any of the others being five hundred miles in diameter and shines like a star of the sixth magnitude gauss by this time had become so practised in the difficult computations that he worked out the complete orbit of vesta within ten hours of receiving the observational data from olbers for many weary years olbers kept up a patient and unremitting search for more of these small bodies or fragments of the large planet as he thought them but his patience went unrewarded and he died in eighteen forty without seeing or knowing of any more in eighteen forty five another was found however in germany and a few weeks later two others by mr hind in england since then there seems no end to them numbers have been discovered in america where professors peters and watson have made a specialty of them and have themselves found something like a hundred vesta is the largest its area being about the same as that of central europe without russia or spain and the smallest known is about twenty miles in diameter or with a surface about the size of kent the whole of them together do not nearly equal the earth in bulk the main interest of these bodies to us lies in the question what is their history can they have been once a single planet broken up or are they rather an abortive attempt at a planet never yet formed into one the question is not entirely settled but i can tell you which way opinion strongly tends at the present time imagine a shell travelling in an elliptic orbit round the earth to suddenly explode the centre of gravity of all its fragments would continue moving along precisely the same path as had been traversed by the centre of the shell before explosion and would complete its orbit quite undisturbed each fragment would describe an orbit of its own because it would be affected by a different initial velocity 
but every orbit would be a simple ellipse, and consequently every piece would in time return through its starting point, namely the place at which the explosion occurred. If the zone of asteroids had a common point through which they all successively passed, they could be unhesitatingly asserted to be the remains of an exploded planet. But they have nothing of the kind. Their orbits are scattered within a certain broad zone, a zone everywhere as broad as the Earth's distance from the Sun, 92 million miles, with no sort of law indicating an origin of this kind. It must be admitted, however, that the fragments of our supposed shell might, in the course of ages, if left to themselves, mutually perturb each other into a different arrangement of orbits from that with which they began. But their perturbations would be very minute, and moreover, on Laplace's theory, would only result in periodic changes, provided each mass were rigid. It is probable that the asteroids were at one time not rigid, and hence it is difficult to say what may have happened to them but there is not the least reason to believe that their present arrangement is derivable in any way from an explosion, and it is certain that an enormous time must have elapsed since such an event, if it ever occurred. It is far more probable that they never constituted one body at all, but are the remains of a cloudy ring thrown off by the solar system in shrinking past that point, a small ring after the immense effort which produced Jupiter and his satellites a ring which is aggregated into a multitude of little lumps instead of a few big ones. Such an event is not unique in the solar system. There is a similar ring round Saturn. At first sight, and to ordinary careful inspection, this differs from the zone of asteroids in being a solid lump of matter, like a quoit. But it is easy to show from the theory of gravitation that a solid ring could not possibly be stable, but would before long get precipitated eccentrically upon the body of the planet. Devices have been invented, such as artfully distributed irregularities calculated to act as satellites and maintain stability. But none of these things really work. Nor will it do to imagine the rings fluid. They too would destroy each other. The mechanical behavior of a system of rings, on different hypotheses as to their constitution, has been worked out with consummate skill by Clerk Maxwell who finds that the only possible constitution for Saturn's assemblage of rings is a multitude of discrete particles, each pursuing its independent orbit. Saturn's ring is, in fact, a very concentrated zone of minor asteroids, and there is every reason to conclude that the origin of the solar asteroids cannot be very unlike the origin of the Saturnian ones. The nebular hypothesis lends itself readily to both. The interlockings and motions of the particles in Saturn's rings are most beautiful and have been worked out and stated by Maxwell with marvelous completeness. His paper constituted what is called the Adams Prize Essay for 1856. Sir George Airy, one of the adjudicators, recently Astronomer Royal, characterized it as one of the most remarkable applications of mathematics to physics that I have ever seen. There are several distinct constituent rings in the entire Saturnian zone, and each perturbs the other, with the result that they ripple and pulse in concord. The waves thus formed absorb the effect of the mutual perturbations, and prevent an accumulation which would be dangerous to the persistence of the whole. The only effect of gravitational perturbation and of collisions is gradually to broaden out the whole ring, enlarging its outer and diminishing its inner diameter. But if there were any frictional resistance in the medium through which the rings spin, then other effects would slowly occur, which ought to be looked for with interest. So complete and intimate is the way Maxwell works out and describes the whole circumstances of the motion of such an assemblage of particles, 
and so cogent his argument as to the necessity that they must move precisely so, and no otherwise, else the rings would not be stable, that it was a Cambridge joke concerning him that he paid a visit to Saturn one evening and made his observations on the spot. End of Lecture 13